Why don't I start with a word of prayer, and then we'll dive in, and our text is going to be Romans 5, 1 through 11. So, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. Well, why don't we pray, then we'll dive in. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for your saving work in our life. You have sent Jesus into the world to be our Savior. We thank you for his perfect life and his atoning death in our place and his resurrection from the dead. We thank you for the fact that we have been justified, declared righteous in your sight as a free gift of grace when we simply believed and trusted in Christ. And we know that even that faith has come from you as a gift. We give you all the glory and we thank you for all the other blessings that come through our union with Christ, our adoption and our hope of glory, our constant care that you give us in this life, the assurance that one day we will see Christ face to face. All these things are so glorious that we have trouble wrapping our mind around them. But we thank you that you have spoken to us about these things in your word. And even this morning as we turn to Romans 5, we begin to dive into this text. We pray that you would please guide us, give us wisdom, illumine our minds by the Spirit to give us understanding. And to. we pray that these things would not just remain as truths in our head, but that they would sink down into our hearts and have a transformative effect upon us, that we would walk out of here having been washed with the water of the Word. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that that's what you're committed to doing, sanctifying us by the truth of Scripture. And we pray that you would do that this morning, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Romans chapter 5. You can see this is where we're at. We're about concluding this section, this session, six sessions left in our class. So we're going to cover the first half of chapter 5, and then next week we'll cover Romans 5, 12 through 21. Let me just uh, review a little bit here. If you remember where we've come from, I'm going to do this every time just to kind of continue to set the stage for us as we continue to move through Romans. It's important to remember where we've come from, and especially this week since we took a break from the class for two Sundays to focus on missions. But remember in the opening section, 1, 1 through 17, Paul wanted to preach the gospel in Rome because it revealed a righteousness from God by which everyone who believed could be saved. And so that was hit the opening section. And then he moved into this long section in 118 through 319, where he explained that everyone needs the saving righteousness revealed in the gospel because they are under God's wrath for their unrighteousness, right? And so the gospel reveals a righteousness that we need because we are unrighteous and under his judgment. So when Paul talks about salvation through this gospel righteousness, he's talking about salvation from God's own judgment. Um, So it's important to remember that biblically, The salvation talked about in Scripture is actually a salvation by God from God. And that's important as 
difficult as that is for some people to wrap their mind around. And then also, Romans 3, 21 through 31 is sort of the heart of the book, you might say, where Paul really explains how, God, how the gospel reveals the righteousness which is given to us by God as a gracious gift and is based upon Christ's atoning sacrifice to every sinner who believes. You remember, how can God be just and justify the unrighteous? Well, through Christ's atoning sacrifice. That's how he can do it, because Christ has borne the judgment we deserved in our place. And then as we moved into Romans 5, Paul followed this sort of summary explanation of the gospel up with showing through an exposition of Genesis 15:6 how this gift of justification by faith through the gospel is actually not some kind of overthrow of the Old Testament but rather it is in harmony with the Old Testament. So he shows from Genesis 15, 6, how justification by faith is there in the Old Testament. Abraham believed, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So Paul's saying this is nothing new in the sense that, in the sense of being somehow totally separate from the Old Testament scriptures. And then finally, we're entering into this section now in Romans 5 through 8, which I do believe is a major turning point in the letter, although it's not like disconnected from what has come before, but it is a turning point in the letter where Paul begins to describe now other benefits and blessings that we receive by faith in Jesus Christ along with justification. So if all that God did if you're thinking all that God did was declare us righteous, forgive us of our sins, credit to us Christ's righteousness, and then send us on our way, you would think, oh, wow, that's great. But actually, that's not all he did. Rather, he did so, so much more. He transforms us as his own adopted children. And that's what we're going to look at, is the other blessings and benefits that come to us along with justification through faith in Jesus Christ. So that brings us to Romans 5. And I want to start by looking at the first two verses. So if someone would be willing to read Romans 5, 1 through 2, that would be great. Someone who gets there, just go ahead and read it. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him... We have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. All right. So, in this text, what we see, not get there yet, is that Paul enumerates certain spiritual benefits that those who have been justified, notice, since we have been justified, right? These things are true. So he's enumerating these other spiritual benefits which those who have been justified enjoy right now in the present. And particularly, you see grace or peace, grace, joy, and hope in these, these uh, two verses here. So that's what we want to focus on now. And we'll just walk through this. He says, since we have been justified by faith. Now, would someone be willing to read Chapter 4, verses 22 through 24, just to refresh us as to what he had said there. 4, 22 through 24. 
That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised him, excuse me, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up from for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Okay, so that was the end of chapter 4, right? In other words, these are the verses right before our text in Romans 5. But notice, throughout the chapter, he'd been talking about who? Who he'd been talking about? In chapter... Abraham, right? And he's talking about how Abraham was justified by faith. It was credited to him as righteousness. And he talks about all kinds of things. What that faith looked like, how he grew stronger in faith, how he believed, even when Sarah was barren, etc., right? But then, do you notice here at the very end, in verse 23, he goes back to that verse he's been expounding, Genesis 15, 6, and he says, hey, that was not just about Abraham. He says that the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone. In other words, this wasn't just about Abraham. These were written down for us too, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised Jesus from the dead. Do you see? He's saying just as Abraham was credited as with righteousness through faith, the same applies to us. That's why it was written down for us. So you see, that's the background is that turn to show that what was true of Abraham is true of us. That's what brings us to chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith. So do you see, having turned and applied Genesis 15, 6 to us and said, this is true of us. Now he is turning to talk about what else is true of us since we have been justified by faith, just like Abraham, right? And notice the tense of the verbs here is such that your English translation is capturing this that this is a past sort of completed event. You have been justified, right? So think about that, believer, <laughs> that you are now no, not guilty, but righteous in Christ. And I'm going to point this out later, but this was a, one of the big controversies with Rome in the Reformation, is that Rome defined justification as a process of being made more and more righteous. And that process isn't even completed when you die. That's why you have to go to purgatory for those final temporal punishments that you deserve for your sin to be sort of burned off or uh, implemented. So justification for Rome is is a process that is throughout your life. That's why Rome doesn't really allow some kind of assurance of salvation like protestants would talk about rather you you need to continue this process of availing yourself of the sacraments right and having the righteousness of christ infused into you over time so that you're becoming more and more righteous because surely god would never justify you declare you righteous if you weren't actually righteous right but notice the difference with this text having been justified you are justified Right? You are declared righteous in Christ. It's past, completed, it's a reality. This is a, a great verse to bring out with Roman Catholics if you're trying to minister the gospel to them. Or if you find your own self wavering, 
with respect to these things? Because it stands in such contrast. That doesn't mean Rome doesn't have ways of interpreting this to get around it, but I'm just pointing out that face value, this is a finished act. You have been justified. And now Paul talks about, okay, what else is true of you? So it just gets more glorious, right? Okay, and then it says, we have peace with God. So you think about this, Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all of the unrighteousness and ungodliness of man. And, and he labors to say that we were all in that camp. Jew and Gentile, all are under sin. And then, now he says, we've been justified. So, God's wrath against us has been now turned away. And we are right with him. We're at peace with him. So we were, he was, he did stand over against us in wrath when we were in our sin. But now, Christ Remember 321 through 25, the propitiatory sacrifice of Christ. Christ has offered up himself as a wrath-satisfying sacrifice. He satisfied the justice of God against our sin when he died in our place on the cross. And now God's wrath has turned away from us. It has been satisfied at the cross. And now we are justified. We are right with God. And relationally, we are at peace with him. He's no longer standing over against us in wrath. Let that sink in, believer. When we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Right? He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Why does it say he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins? Why is it a matter of justice that God forgive us our sins? Because that's what's required. Mercy or justice. Right, and, and why would it be a matter of justice that he forgive us, his children, of our sin every time we sin? The, pay, the debt is paid, right? His son has already paid the debt. So, what a glorious thing. You, believer, have peace with God. Relationally, you are reconciled to him. No more wrath. And while this text doesn't talk about it here, there's also no more Rebellion against him. We are no longer his enemies. He has reconciled us relationally to himself. You remember that great text in First Corinthians, sorry, Second Corinthians chapter five, that in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their sins against us. He sent Christ as his own ambassador to initiate reconciliation with his rebellious creatures. Right? It's amazing. We are at peace with God. And then he says, I want to, and I just want to point this out. You notice that through our Lord Jesus Christ, through him. So what that's indicating is that there is a, that Christ is our mediator who has secured all these redemptive blessings for us. And we receive all these blessings, not directly from God the Father, but through Jesus Christ. He is the mediator between God and man. He is the one who has secured all these things. He is the seed of Abraham. He is the seed of the woman. He is the descendant of David. He is the recipient of all of the promises of God. They are all yes and amen in him. And then when we believe in him, we are united to him in the bonds of the new covenant. And what is his becomes ours. 
We receive every redemptive blessing in Christ. So you guys have read Ephesians 1. Do you remember that? In Him. He chose us in Him. Right? In the Beloved. In Christ. So it all comes to us through Christ. He is the conduit, as, as it were. Although not impersonally, but personally. It's sort of like this. It's, think of yourself as... You are the bride of Christ. He's united himself to you in the bonds of the new covenant. So if uh, maybe you've had a child that got engaged and then became married. Does anyone have children that got married? I know my mom will raise her hand, right? So then now to your child is attached to this other person. And so when they come, they're the bride of your child or the groom of your child. Now... Now, the same favor and love that you have toward your child, ideally, right, is now shared with the one with whom they have become one flesh. Yeah, I know. It's not perfect, is it? But some of you have actually experienced that in a sweet way. So, this is what, we're with Christ. We're the bride of God's Son. And therefore what, and He has secured all these blessings for us. So God God has given to us all these things through our union with Christ. It's a glorious thing. Let it sink in. And then we have also obtained access by faith, again, through Christ, into this grace in which we stand. Now, what does grace mean? Anyone know? Biblically, what does grace mean? How would you describe it? Free favor, right? You have... The free favor of God, I think that's, obviously that's whose grace this is. And particularly thinking of God the Father, because it's through Jesus Christ. But we now have entered into the sphere, as it were, the realm, as it were, of God's grace. And we have this permanent standing there. So think of it this way. If you're a child, you have... A permanent standing in the favor of your parents. So, anyone else has to knock on the door of your house and see if your parents will let them in and they'll be able to talk. But you, you don't need that, right? Uh, Or your children don't need that. They could just come right in. In fact, they could come, they they do. You know, have you guys ever seen uh, that picture of the mom talking about her life? It's like a meme where she's in the bathroom and her kids have their fingers under the door. You know, she's like, you can never get away, right? (laughs) But your kids have that kind of boldness that you see. They don't have that kind of boldness even with another person. You bring them to church and another sweet family from the church says, hi, guys. And what do they do? (laughs) You know, (laughs) but with you, they're totally bold, right? Because they know that they have this permanent standing in your favor. At least that's how it should be. Maybe some of you have had experiences with your parents that are different than that but that's how it should be that's what it's saying we have obtained this access into god's free favor undeserved favor and we have this permanent standing there we are standing in the favor of god you can bust into god the father's room as it were you remember the writer of hebrews says he encourages us to draw near with confidence to the throne of grace through jesus christ Hebrews chapter 10, he talks about how we have access into the holy places through the veil, which is Christ's own flesh. We have 
permanent standing in God's free favor. Wonderful. Let these blessings sink in. They're transformative, aren't they? And then the last one is, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So our hearts are filled with joy. That is something that, you know, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. So if we have the Holy Spirit, one mark of a Christian is a true heart, a true joy in your heart. And why do we rejoice? Not necessarily because of a change in our present circumstances in life, you know. If you become a Christian, you go home to the same house, and the same old car, right? Still got the same wife and children and job. And that doesn't change. But we, have, we rejoice in hope. We've been given a hope, a hope beyond the circumstances of this life, a hope of the glory of God. Now, I'm going to talk about this more, but biblical hope, remember, is not like, I hope the A's win the World Series, which every year, that is my hope, but I don't expect it to happen, right? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I, I don't expect it to happen most years. Some years I actually have a more... A more a greater expectation, and then I'm always my hopes are always dashed, always. <laughs> Except for 1989 when we swept the Giants. So, woo! But biblically, hope is not that kind of hope. It's a certain expectation. We know this will happen, and when it says a hope of the glory of God, we're going to get into this, but. It's some kind of expectation of sharing in, of participating in the glory of God in the future. Okay, so you can imagine what this means, and we'll talk about it more, but you kind of get the sense. We have this future hope of sharing in God's glory, as opposed to, to participating in his wrath and judgment. And that fills our hope, our hearts right now with joy. Even in the midst of sorrows, Paul said, we are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Why? Because we have have this hope that can't be touched by any circumstance in this life. It's a hope of future participation in the glory of God. Okay, so these are the, the benefits which we enjoy right now in the present by faith in Jesus Christ, through our union with Jesus Christ, peace, grace, joy, and hope. Okay? So just a couple of interpretive questions. He says, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So what, what does Paul mean by the phrase, hope of the glory of God? These ofs in Scripture mean that there's a certain grammatical, well, the grammatical form of the next word. And in this case, in this case, uh, and when you have this, we call it in Greek the genitive, you have to decide what is the relationship between this, these words and, and hope. And the first word, so hope of the glory of God could mean different things. It could mean the hope which is the glory of God. It could mean a hope which comes from the glory of God, right? So in other words, there's different, there's different object or different ways of seeing that relationship that has to be interpreted. If you open up a more technical commentary, they're going to do that. 
But I want to talk about it a little bit here. It seems like the glory of God is somehow the object of the hope. It's what we're hoping in. We're expecting in some way to participate in the glory of God. We have Christians have this expectation of sharing in the glory of God. But then what does the glory of God refer to? Well, the glory of God could refer to, it seems, A, the glory which belongs to God, right? God's own glory. Or it could refer to a glory which comes from God, which somehow becomes ours, right? Or perhaps there's something of both in this, right? Perhaps it's some, some way related to both. I want to actually turn you to Romans chapter 8. If you would, turn to Romans 8. And I want to show you how this language of glory is not... It's something that Paul talks about a lot, actually, in the letter to Romans. And particularly in Romans chapter 8. So if you turn there, you'll see, for instance, that in verses 16 and 17, he says this. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs... Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, right? Christ is the Son of God. He has the inheritance from God the Father. And then we, through union with him, have now become fellow heirs and fellow children. Then he says, provided we suffer with him in this life, in order that we may also be glorified with him. So we will be glorified in some way with Christ. Christ will be glorified and we will be glorified with him in some way in the future. So this is provocative, isn't it? What does this mean? Well, of course, he goes on in the very next verse to kind of talk about it more, doesn't he? He says uh, in the next verse, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory, there it is again, right, that is to be revealed to us. And then you say, well, what is that glory that will be revealed to us? Uh, he talks about it, doesn't he? For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope here we go, hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So there's glory again, right? For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we await eagerly for adoption as sons... That is, the redemption of our bodies. In this hope we are saved. Now, there's hope here. There's hope of glory. Particularly, it's called the glory of the sons of God, the children of God. And what, how would you describe what this glory is that we're hoping in here? How would you describe it? Doesn't glory... Um make you think of light, the, the brightness, the light of his pure, holy being. Right. Well, there is a sense in which, if you're talking about God's glory, what you're talking about is the radiance out, the shining forth of his character. Mm -hmm. But here, when it talks about 
the glory of the children of God, the glory that is to be revealed to us, what does he, how does he then describe it in the text? What's it all about? Redemption of our bodies, the resurrection, new creation. Right. There's the redemption of our bodies and there's the redemption of all creation, which of course is tied in with God's own glory because it's not like people are going to go, wow, you're so amazing, right? <laughs> it's, going to, it's going to reflect God's own redemptive work and his character. But, but there's a sense in which just like the moon hangs in the sky and shines with this brightness that comes from the sun, right? We are going to be glorified. We are going to shine with the, the evidence of God's redemptive work and not just us, but the whole creation. So when Paul says, I consider the sufferings of this present time not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us, He's talking about our future redemption, the consummation of our redemption through resurrection and through new creation, where we and all creation will be set free from our bondage to corruption, which makes us groan right now. That's the glory. Now, as part of that, notice he goes on to talk about it a little bit more in the rest of the chapter later on. He says, verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, sorry, Go back to uh, chapter, or verse 28. So this is still in chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorify. So God is working in our life for good. And what is that good that he is accomplishing in our life? Is it a new car and, you know, a healthy body and being more like He's conforming us into the image of Christ. And then he circles back around and he says, For those whom are predestined are also called. Those who are called are also justified. Those who are justified, he is also glorified. So what do you think being glorified is? Well, it's certainly the redemption of our bodies through resurrection. But what is going to be the end result of that? When we're raised from the dead, who are we going to be like? Jesus Christ. So being glorified is not just resurrection but it's resurrection to perfect conformity to god to christ which will be the best thing that ever happened to us right it will lead to fullness of joy fullness of love for god no more sin no more sorrow so this is i think what paul is talking about earlier on when he talks about we have this hope of the glory of god something along these lines What was lost before? Because he said in chapter 3, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And Christ is giving it back to us. So this is what we hope for. And this is what fills us with joy right now. By the way, if we're finding ourselves grumbling, complaining because of this or that that's going wrong. Well, the reason why we're not having joy in that is because we're not allowing what is truly glorious to fill our hearts. We're we're not hoping in that. We're hoping in other stuff. 
stuff that can easily be taken away from us. If, you, if you're hoping in these things, your heart will be filled with joy. Rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Okay. Going back to the text, would someone read Romans 5, 3 through 5? Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Okay, so notice in verses 1 through 2, Paul ended that those glorious verses by saying that we hope in future glory, right? We rejoice now in the hope of future glory, but he also says we rejoice in something else, something in the present. We rejoice in the hope of glory, but we also rejoice in our present sufferings. Come on, Paul, this is ridiculous. Surely we don't rejoice in that, right? No, he says we do. We also rejoice in our present sufferings, not because the sufferings themselves are good, but because of the good effect that God is working in us through those sufferings, right? So this is one of those classic texts that we go, I know when we're in the midst of sufferings and, and, and we read that, I know we're supposed to rejoice, but, well, this is helping us remember how we can have joy even in the sufferings of this life even in the midst of the sufferings of this life. So not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering. So in addition to rejoicing in future glory, we rejoice in our present sufferings. Why? Knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character. So notice, first of all, the cause of our rejoicing is not those bad things that happen to us in themselves, but rather it's what effect they have, what they produce. So what they produce in us is this endurance, fortitude, a strength to keep going. So if you spend any time in the gym, which probably some of you do, and if you, if you, (laughs) I just heard someone snicker. So if you do, one of the things that you do is you lift weights or you do cardio workout on the, on the Stairmaster, or they don't even have those anymore. Ellipticals now is the big yeah. thing. And the runner. And the goal is that you build strength so that you are more able to do more things, right? So Beverly and I go to the same gym. We were talking about the progress that she's made over, over the last however many months. And I could say the same thing. You, it's painful, right? It's painful. But it produces this strength, this fortitude, right? I think that's the idea. You have, God puts you through tough things in the gymnasium of life to build your strength. Suffering produces endurance. And so if you never go to the gym and you just sit in your chair, you just become a ball of flab. You can't do much. Now, that's obviously... Not if you can go to the gym, but that's, that's the point, is that we have to have some pain in order to get the gain, right? <laughs> Suffering produces endurance, and then endurance produces something. The outcome of endurance is character. Now here, I want to unpack this in a bit, but 
He's saying that that spiritual strength that you gain through going through the fires of suffering, it, when you come out the other side, what happens is the suffering will have proven the genuine quality of your character. So if you think about the, there, and I think there is something of this here even, um, with this language of proven character, the idea of you got this ball of, it looks like precious metal, but it's covered with all this other stuff. How do you test whether it's really true gold or true silver? What do you do? Yeah, you put it into a fire. And if it's true, if it's genuine, all that dross will burn away and melt off. And what's left will be the good metal. And so what you have is this proven, the proven character of that metal. That's the idea here. That's what suffering is doing. It's building strength. And as you come out the other side, your character is proven true and genuine. In other words, genuinely spiritual, wrought of God. That's good. That's a good effect of suffering. And then character, proven character produces hope. So when the character of our faith, in other words, the nature of our faith, the quality of our faith is proven genuine, through this testing process, it confirms to us, ah, yes, we truly are believers. We belong to Christ. We will certainly inherit that glory. If we're a ball of flab spiritually, or if we're, if we're wilting away and falling away in testing, then, then our assurance is really weakened. We, we don't know. We're going through this terrible trial. I'm losing my faith and I'm, I'm drinking myself drunk every night and all this stuff. Your assurance is just going to be in the toilet. But if you're coming through it, if God is preserving you and proving your character, it just builds your assurance and fills you with hope, strengthens your hope. So that's one thing that God is doing through testing. All right. Um, and our hope, and this, I'm going to talk about this a little bit more later in the interpretive question, but our hope then is also confirmed by something else. In other words, you could think about our hope being confirmed by the testimony of two witnesses. One is the fact that our character is being proven true through testing, and then something else. There's another witness, and this witness is within us. What is the witness here? The Holy Spirit testifies to us. He, God's love is poured into our hearts. It's a very evo- evocative language. It's the idea of It's not just like, you know, pouring a little glass. It's like, you know, poured out in abundance into our hearts. The love of God is poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And that, too, strengthens our hope. Later on in chapter 8, he talks about this in a little bit different way. He talks about the the witness of the Holy Spirit, who by which we cry out, Abba, Father, the spirit of adoption. Have you guys experienced that? The... The testimony of the Holy Spirit to God's love, and I'm going to argue to God's love for you, that the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, that Christ has redeemed us, that he loves us. Wonderful. Okay, now a couple of interpretive questions. I just want to get show you why I believe that what I said about this language, endurance produces character. What does Paul mean when he says that endurance produces character? Well, 
That word translated character in the Greek is dokime, and you find it multiple places in these types of contexts in Scripture. In these types of contexts, it refers to something which has been proven through a testing process. And I already used that illustration of metals. It could be translated, therefore, you know, character. If you think of character, you should think of quality of something. And it could be translated proven character or tested quality. So that's the idea of this word dokime. And here Paul is saying that sufferings are like that testing process, like a fire which proves the true quality or the true character of your spiritual condition. I would add here that I think that while Paul doesn't say it specifically, you say, well, what is it? I've said spiritual condition. What is it specifically in terms of our spiritual condition that is being proven? I think in other passages you see that probably our faith. Because if, uh, if you turn to, for instance, James 1, 2 through 4, you see very similar language as Paul uses here. It's as if this was a very common teaching repeated by different apostles at different times. And where you see it elsewhere in the New Testament, it always specifies that what's being tested and proven is your faith. This is counted all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. It's almost the exact language, isn't it? And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So notice what is being tested here. Your faith, right? And then turn to another passage, First Peter 1, 6 through 7. And if someone would read that, First Peter 1, 6 through 7. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Well, there you see it again, don't you? Tested genuineness, and, and you see it specifically speaking of your faith. It's, it's likely in my, my mind that though Paul doesn't mention faith specifically when he talks about suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character, he's saying the character he's talking about, the, the quality or the gen, tested genuineness that he's talking about is the tested genuineness of your faith. Your faith has made it through suffering and come out the other side stronger and proven true faith, true saving faith. Do you remember in Jesus' parable of the sower that some seed was on the rocky ground and it sprung up? It looked real. But then what happened to it? The heat came out, had no root, so it withered away. So there is a type of faith, if you will, that it looks like true saving faith, but it's not. And how do you know? Because it withers away and dies under testing. So testing proves the true quality of our faith. And that's one of the good things that God is doing is he's, he'll strengthen us to endure, not because we're strong, but because our faith is real. And when it comes out the other side, it'll be proved genuine and we'll be filled with greater hope, right? Because we'll have seen it. Okay, now another interpretive question. 
is he says, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us there. Now, what is Paul referring to by God's love, which has been poured out into our hearts through the Spirit? And you can think there's basically two options there. One is that you could say that it's the Holy Spirit giving us a love for God in our hearts. So God's, the Holy Spirit pours out the love of God. In other words, he gives us a love for God. That's one option. Another option is that the Holy Spirit pours out the love of God into our heart in the sense that he gives us a sense of God's love for us. Our love for God or God's love for us. You see, that's the interpretive question. What is he talking about when he says God's love is poured out into our hearts? Is he giving us a love for God or showing us God's love for us? What in this text might give us a hint? When you look at the broader context of which it is. Verse 8. Right. Why, why do you say that? Verse 8 talks about God demonstrating his love for us. Right. And in fact, it's not just verse 8. It's sort of the, the rest of the passage. He talks about God's love for us. So notice the connection. The Holy Spirit pours into our hearts God's love. And then he says, and what is God's love? And he says, God demonstrated his own love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, right? So it's the Holy Spirit revealing to us, giving us a sense within our hearts of God's love for us. That's what strengthens our hope, right? That's what guarantees that our hope will not be put to shame. In fact, notice that word, guarantees. If Paul says... And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. If he meant because God has given us a love for him, that wouldn't necessarily guarantee that our hope won't be put to shame. Because our love for God is kind of fluctuates and is fallible. But his love for us certainly does guarantee that our hope will not be put to shame. So I think it's that and like what Ben said, the rest of the passage sort of points in the direction of this is the Holy Spirit giving us in abundance, pouring out into our hearts a sense of God's love for us. Now, in Revelation 2, the Ephesian church, what was the thing that he rebuked them for? Do you remember? That they lost the love that they had at first. So our love for God, it's true, can wax and wane and at times like a spouse, maybe growing cold toward their spouse over time. We can lose that love that maybe we had at first. But the Holy Spirit is in the business of giving us a love, a sense of God's love for us that in abundance. So pray, pray for the Spirit to renew your sense of God's love for us. Because what happens when we see God's love for us? What what does John say? We love... Because he first loved us. So the more that you have a strong grasp, perception within you by the Spirit of God's love for you, what will it tend to do? Enlarge and grow your love for Christ. That's just a little takeaway from that. Let's look at the last part of the text. Romans 5, 6 through 11. So would someone read that? Romans 5, 6 through 11. While we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. 
for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, but perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we now, since we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Okay. So Paul had described the love of God, or Paul had talked about how the Spirit pours out the love of God within our hearts, and then now he describes the nature of that love, of God's love for us. And he explains how it confirms our hope of future glory. And the way he does that is he uses what's often called the lesser to greater argument. If this is true, how much more is this true? You guys seen that argument used many times in the New Testament? Well, he uses that here. It was a common among the rabbis, especially in that day. So, first of all, we see Paul says that Christ's death for us, while we were helpless and ungodly, while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. He used that word back in chapter 4 when he said, to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited to him as righteousness. Here it's, Christ died for the ungodly. And then he says, you, you guys remember um, the Tale of Two Cities? I had to read that in high school, AP English. I remember just being bored out of my mind. But now I'm amazed at that book. But at the very end, what happens? Does anyone remember? He dies for... Right. This sort of noble figure takes the place of someone else in prison and goes to the guillotine instead of them. But... Notice, he was dying for someone else that you kind of knew was noble. And that we sometimes see. You know, we see uh, a military soldier jumping on a grenade for, for his brothers or a father giving up his life for his children to protect them, right? What you don't see is a guy like that dying for the French revolutionaries, the, the people doing the guillotining, Right? You don't see a soldier dying for the enemy. And that's what he's saying. That's what makes God's love so different. We were his enemies. We were ungodly, right? Notice, ungodly, sinners, enemies. And while we were still in that condition, shaking our fist at God, Christ died for us. He didn't die for us because there was some good in us that he saw. He died for us while we were weak. We were wicked and we were weak. We were wicked and we couldn't do anything to change ourselves. We're just in bondage to sin. So think about that. It's humbling. But that's the nature of God's love. God demonstrated his own love toward us in this. That while we were still sinners, deserving his wrath, Christ died for us and that's amazing because when you hear the word christ you think messiah and the jews thought great king 
the Son of God, worthy of all glory and submission, he died for wicked people, ungodly people. That's his love. And then, notice, he says later on, if that's true, if he's loved us in that way while we were still sinners, and now he's already purchased us with his blood, is he going to let us perish in the final judgment? Do you see? That's the lesser thing. Saving people that he's already reconciled, already died for in the final judgment, that's the lesser thing. The greater thing is dying for them in the first place when they were enemies. If he did the greater thing, which has happened, right? Will he not also do the lesser thing? Do you see, his point is, there's your hope, believer. When you face the final judgment, no, he's already died for you while you were sinners, and now you're his children. Now you're his blood-bought bride. Surely, surely, he will save you from the wrath to come, right? So God's love demonstrated in the cross confirms our hope. And he uses that lesser greater to greater argument. If God's already loved us in this way, the greater thing, how much more will he grant us final salvation from his wrath? And notice he does use that language. We will be saved. Okay, now, I want to just do one quickly one interpretive question. Notice that language. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Much more now shall we be saved by his life. If you think about it, that's not the way you go around talking about your salvation. Is it? You usually talk about, I have been saved, right? And he, he just said, having been justified. But here he talks about being saved in the future. And so that leads us to an interpretive question. How can Paul talk about salvation in the future tense? Well, actually, it's interesting that while we speak of salvation almost exclusively as a past event, in the New Testament, it speaks of salvation as having past, present, and future aspects to it or elements to it. Think of Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved. That's the past. That's what we always look to, right? <laughs> I've been saved. But in 1 Corinthians 15, 2, it says, and by which you are being saved. That's an ongoing dynamic in the present. And then here in our text, he says, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So you see, what this tells us is that actually biblically, while it's perfectly good to talk about past salvation, biblically the term salvation does not only refer to the past, there is a past completed aspect to it. We have been justified. But it has past, present, and future elements to it. Uh, it began at our conversion, justification. It's maintained during our life as he continually keeps us and sanctifies us. And it will be completed at the second coming through glorification. So salvation in one sense encompasses all those things. And Paul's point here is that it's all connected. If, if he's already justified you, if he's already purchased you with Christ's blood, of course he will save you from the wrath to come. There's no way that you can get saved here and then not, that future aspect of it you, you might not get. It's, it's all yours together, although it unfolds, it has certain elements of it that are past, present, and future. All right? Any question on that?
I know we're out of time, but I want to make sure. <laughs> all right, so you all understand that I'm not saying that somehow you can lose your salvation. I'm not saying that it's not appropriate to talk about having been saved in the past, of course. But just recognize that the Bible does use that language in other ways. Okay, finally, just very quickly here. Paul says that we should be, con- that we should be confident that we possess these blessings that he talks about in verses 1 through 2. I hope you go away from here and you really take that to heart. You let that sink in. I have been justified and so I have peace with God. I have a standing in his free favor. I rejoice because I have this hope of the glory of God. Let that sink in. Let that fill you with joy today. We also must remember the good things that God is accomplishing through our sufferings. So the next time that we go through a severe trial in our life, maybe you are right now, we have to reckon with this text. It will help you rejoice in the midst of your trial. You'll still weep over the trial. You'll still grieve. But in the midst of it, you can also rejoice because you know what God's doing in it through you. You're actually in his gymnasium and he's strengthening you, giving you fortitude. And the end result is that as he keeps you and brings you out the other side of it, your faith will be proven to be of genuine quality. So let that sink in and appropriate that in the midst of trial. And then we should pray for the Holy Spirit to deepen our sense. Maybe you're in a state where you feel like you've sort of lost that love that you used to have for Christ. Pray that he would strengthen you with a fresh sense of the love of God Christ for you. And that your love for him might be stoked afresh and fanned into flame. And then finally, we ought to actually use this lesser to greater argument. If you find any fear and trepidation about the future and what's going to happen, use this. Say, wait, 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 wait. Christ already died for me when I was a wicked sinner, (laughs) right? Surely I have nothing to worry about. Surely he will do the lesser thing. Just like in Romans 8, he says that he's given his own son for you. How will he not, along with him, also freely give you all things? So use these lesser to greater arguments in your life. Convince and persuade your soul that these things are true through this argumentation. It's a beautiful thing. That's why he's given it to us, that we might do that. Okay, that's the end. Let me, uh, let me close us in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we praise you for this wonderful text. Surely, we need to, to grasp these things and take them to heart. It's so easy to, like Peter, when he stepped out, onto the, out of the boat onto the water, just begin to sink as we look at things around us and our circumstances around us. The storm of life, if you will. But when we appropriate the truths of your word, it fills us with fresh joy, hope, peace, confidence. Lord, we have so much to be thankful for, so much to rejoice in. Our souls can rest in the finished work of Christ. Our souls can be confident in the face of the uncertainties of the future. Even in the midst of sufferings, we can rejoice. We just pray that you would help us to take these things to heart and really profit from them, even this morning. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.